Welcome to Going Public, a podcast dedicated to exploring public scholarship and publicly engaged teaching in the humanities. My name is Annie Dwyer, and at the time of this recording, I am the Assistant Program Director of a Mellon Initiative at the University of Washington Simpson Center for the Humanities. The initiative's name is Reimagining the Humanities PhD and Reaching New Publics, Catalyzing Collaboration. Since 2015, two successive Mellon initiatives by this name have supported public scholars at the University of Washington, both faculty developing new graduate seminars in the humanities with public-facing components and doctoral students pursuing public projects in the humanities. The episodes of Going Public consist of interviews with Mellon-supported public scholars after they have launched their projects or taught their public-facing seminars. Please do check out our companion website, which includes faculty fellow syllabi, as well as doctoral student fellow project overviews, artifacts, and other ephemera. The podcast, along with the website, is intended to serve as a resource for scholars interested in developing similar projects and seminars. You can find the Going Public website at www.simpsoncenter.org slash going public. You can also find the link in the description of today's episode. Today's episode, Good Public Philosophy, is an interview with Sarah Gehring, professor of philosophy at the University of Washington. In the summer of 2021, Sarah received a Mellon Summer Fellowship for new graduate seminars in the humanities. Over that summer, she developed a course titled Ethics Matters, which she taught for the first time in winter of 2022. Our conversation explores, among other things, the public nature of philosophical questions, the value of collaboration, and pedagogical approaches to public-facing projects in graduate education. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So as a way to introduce listeners to your work, I'm wondering if we can talk a bit about how Ethics Matters fits into the graduate certificate in ethics offered by the UW Department of Philosophy. And as I understand, the course is one of the required courses for this graduate certificate in ethics. So uh, it plays a central role in equipping graduate students across disciplines with the skills and knowledge they need to integrate ethics into their chosen field. And I'm just wondering, you know, what difference does it make to center public facing scholarship in an ethics course like this? And um, I guess another way to ask this question is just when you bring ethics and public scholarship into the same frame, what's what's the result? Um, How does ethics benefit from a public orientation? How might public scholarship benefit from a consideration of ethics? So there's a lot in there. (laughs) Um, The the Ethics Matters class is one of two of the sort of core courses, but students to finish the certificate just need to take one. Many people take both, but they only need to take one. Ethics Matters and Justice Matters. Um, And I just want to say that these are courses that draw people from all across the university. So in a typical course, I might have somebody from communications, from education, from uh, public health genetics, from the law school, from the I school, from political science, right? So students are coming together who don't really have other shared disciplinary backgrounds or skill sets, mainly because they want to focus on something normative, something ethics or justice related in their own graduate work. And they're just coming to this certificate uh, in ethics or the class, even without the certificate, to learn a bit more about philosophical foundations in these areas and get some uh, tools and skills and language that they can bring to their own work. Um, So not all of that work that they're trying to do in these very different 
departments or schools will be necessarily public facing. But I think in our moment, there are so many broad and not just in our moment, but, you know, all through history, there are so many uh, ethical dilemmas, debates, questions about justice and equity that, that are ongoing public conversations. And often people sort of jump out with a position without maybe fully doing the work to articulate what they mean by certain terms or words they're using within those arguments or thinking how they will sit within different communities or different contexts. And I think those are some of the skills that philosophy can train students for is getting very precise about what we mean by, for instance, a word like trust or autonomy or integrity. Um, and so students come to learn about those, what I would call kind of middle level moral concepts. In our class, we cover um, moral status, autonomy, respect and self-respect, trust, integrity, and forgiveness. There are so many more that we could cover, right? So that's just a little subsection of, of what's possible. And then I think adding in the public facing element um, allows people to think, how do I take this important piece of my own work and my discipline that has to do with an ethics or a justice issue and make sure that that gets legs to move beyond just the academy or academic audiences. And, and by reading some of the public facing work that's been done in these areas, they also get models then for how that can be done just in different formats, right? And also they can recognize the difficulty of doing it because if we're reading both the long form academic pieces and the very short blog posts or op-eds, you see that there's, you know, it looks short, but there's a lot of work that goes into condensing down a very complicated subject um, in, that, in that sort of model. Absolutely. Um... I, you know, I'm, I'm curious in particular about the kind of cross-disciplinary composition of this particular classroom. Um, the fact that students are taking this ethics certificate or pursuing this course, you know, in order to pursue the, the ethics certificate and coming from other disciplines, how does, how does this kind of cross-disciplinary space um, either lend itself to or kind of complicate conversations around public scholarship or how does that sort of play out in the classroom? I guess I think um, it's a difficult class to teach because of the different backgrounds, but it's also so rewarding exactly because of that. Just bringing people together across these different disciplinary backgrounds, I think, opens up different uh, spaces of imagination to see. So, for instance, take something like autonomy, which we talk about. <clears throat> I know it well from my own work working within um medical ethics or the medical setting. But one year I had a student from dance doing an MFA and she was really interested in her project and kind of critiquing the way um, professional dancers are trained from a very young age and sort of given very narrow constraints on what's allowable or acceptable in terms of body weight, right? What they do with their time, even just to the minute corrections on body form, right, in order to get the dance right. And that's just a different frame around autonomy than I was used to seeing 
say within the medical context. And then if you add in a social worker, right, a, a person doing an MSW, you also get a slightly different frame and a different perspective on what the value of autonomy is or how physicians interpret autonomy in one way, but often in a direction that aligns with what they think is right. And so for instance, this time I had a, a practicing social worker uh, within a hospital setting who was wanting to do a project looking at the significance of autonomy and the social worker's role in ensuring patient autonomy, especially for people from underrepresented minorities in doing advanced care planning. And I think she was seeing something different from what you might see if you're doing a typical medical ethics kind of uh, approach, looking at it from a physician's perspective or maybe a nurse's perspective. And she was seeing a much broader set of social determinants around autonomy um, and then wanting to convey those out to other social workers, right, to, to have some impact with the kinds of things that she was learning to try to improve practice for other people. So having each of these different disciplinary perspectives, I, I think just opens up the, the kind of social imaginary or the space that we can um, think about the moral concepts within. And, and having that kind of insider, outsider or different disciplinary perspective makes us understand the concept much more effectively. Oh, absolutely. It sounds like that was so generative. And also you're, you're kind of practicing the work of, of translating these key terms to different publics by translating them across disciplinary boundaries. And then there's just the excitement around how these, um, how these different concepts are refracted when you're considering them from different disciplinary positions or perspectives. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a way in which the course itself is a, is a public face it, because it's, it's facing away from philosophy and trying to draw in, you know, students and practitioners as, and sometimes people who occupy both spaces. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious too, you mentioned your work in medical ethics, and I think it's important in our interview to highlight for listeners that you're no stranger to public engagement. You currently lead the ethics thrust at the UW Center for Neurotechnology. In the Neurotechnology Center, my role has been thinking both with people who are currently using neural technologies and research studies to understand more about what it's like to use that device, how using a device affects our sense of responsibility or authenticity or a sense of agency, um, and also kind of, um, you know, horizon scanning to see what's coming down the pipeline in this area and how that might alter some of our other moral values like privacy, right? And thinking about a different kind of access to the interior spaces of our minds. So in those ways, right, I am also thinking about philosophy as a very practical tool that gets taken up in these outside philosophy spaces in neurotechnology, you know, in electrical engineering, or with the philosophy for children in the schools too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm curious, how, how did that shape how you taught your class or did, did your work, your own field philosophy play into or shape your pedagogy in any way? Every experience we have shapes us in some way. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. say to make it explicit, I think I have now had more practice trying to translate philosophy into very plain language in order to make it more accessible for people who don't have the same kind of training. 
And that's a, you know, that's one of the skills that's required for good public philosophy is just not oversimplifying, but knowing a way to capture important nuance within the philosophical work, but without, you know, having the incredibly dense prose or difficult to use lingo that it just ends up excluding people who aren't already part of that club. Right, right. I'm wondering if we can just kind of get a little bit more of a sense of the texture of the course by by learning more about what students actually produce. They had an, as I understand, they had the opportunity to either write a traditional term paper or do a project that was more public facing. Um, did, did students pursue that latter option? And if so, what were some of their projects? Yeah, so a few of them that I can mention, and it's hard, right, because we are in the quarter system and we only have 10 weeks to produce things. So some of the things are more plans and ideas and outlines and rough drafts of things than they are the, the final product at the end of that 10 weeks. So the first one that I would mention is this um, person who's working as a master's in social work doing a video. So she wanted to give a talk focused on what autonomy means and what some of the things that we read in the class look at autonomy, right? We think of autonomy as self-determination and it's in the Western world, it's a very individualistic focus on autonomy. You know, my being autonomous is having a certain kind of internal alignment and wanting to want what I want and being able to do that. And some of the pieces that we read in the course in that week were more focused on the ways in which we're much more interrelational and interdependent, even in our coming to decide what our values are or what matters to us. And then enacting our agency on the world. And so she uh, produced a video and then a list of resources that would be made available to social workers to say, one of your jobs can be not standing back when a person you know, is approaching end of life planning and needs to make decisions about care and leaving that to the physician who is typically right the person in charge of this discussion and then deciding what, uh, helping the person decide or asking the person to decide what they would most like to go into their end of life care. Um, But saying there's a way in which you want to make sure that that person's needs are really being heard. And if it's, if it's too episodic, you know, in this moment, what do you want? If it's, if it, if we try, if we think of autonomy as just involving this person and not involving their family members, there's a certain kind of artificiality about that. And so as a social worker, if you're observing what's going on, there's a way in which you can and should, she argues, advocate for the person who's there to have access, right, to their relational resources, to people who can support them or help push back. You know, sometimes if a person doesn't want something and the physician thinks that's the right thing, then there can be a kind of undermining move of questioning that person's competence. But, right, if we think of autonomy in this more relational way, then even if they have some, uh, if there are some questions about their capacity, their broad competence, if they can be held 
in place by their closest loved ones, right? Who know them well, then there's a way that the social worker can try to make sure that those voices are heard. And so she was just saying, I think a lot of social workers aren't trained in this setting, wouldn't know that they can have this role to play and would think, well, doctor is just asking what the patient wants. Patient says something and, you know, we're done. It's this event rather than trying to get a broader sense of that person's values and their support structure. Oh, what a powerful project. I love that. Yeah, it was really, really great. And, you know, just thinking again, how hard it is to talk about the nuance that's there if we're thinking of autonomy more relationally and give guidance on what maybe you want to do, not just think, but do in your practice. Um, It's complicated, right, to figure out all those things. And so she was putting together sets of resources where people could go find more information or watch other um, video talks about this kind of thing. That's fantastic. And uh, what I love about that example too, is there's a, a conceptual intervention, right? Thinking about autonomy more relationally mm-hmm. and then the sort of practical um, application. So that's mm-hmm. that's such a rich project. Yeah. Then another one that I think I would mention, and of course, right, it all depends on what we think of as public facing, but this is a person from English who was interested in doing, uh, in developing a curriculum for uh, early writing students, which could be used within a university setting, but could be used more broadly as well. And um, the thing that they were really taken with, and this was a new word to me, was a doxography. So A D O X O G R A P H Y, a doxography, writing in praise of something trivial or even worthless, like just as as a kind of writing exercise, writing practice, you know, what's the, find the beauty in trash or the beauty in a blade of grass or something like that. And we were talking um, about the readings and discussions we had around moral status in general. So I think moral status, like people think they know what they ought to do generally, right? And until facing a dilemma or something, but what gives something moral status what does it mean to have moral status? And, you know, within our uh, Western history anyway, a lot of times that's been reserved for human and only human within philosophical circles. It's sometimes reserved for particular kinds of humans, certainly looking back, very particular kinds of humans. Um, but, you know, from Jeremy Bentham onward, there's been discussion about animals having moral status in virtue of the fact that they can suffer. Then does it need to be sentience, right? This capacity to feel something and suffer that grants you some level of moral status? Or could there be things that don't have that capacity, but nonetheless should have moral status? So, of course, you know, we have from the 70s, Christopher Stone talking about whether trees have standing. Trees are often not thought to be sentient in the relevant ways by most philosophers, but of course they're alive. Is it everything that's alive? How do we define what's alive, right? You can see how difficult it can get. And so I think um, we also talked about, you know, ecosystems or collections of things or a river which is comprised of both inanimate and animate entities within it, even if they're very small scale and not understood to be sentient. So, so how do we think about what it is an entity, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What it is to have moral status 
And then thinking about writing that could along this line, you know, in praise of something that appears to be trivial or appears not to have moral status, but maybe when you start thinking about it more thoroughly, right, as you try to praise the things that are part of that, you might start to recognize and think through uh, a broader sense of what moral status is or could be or what that would mean, right, to say that a tree has moral status in its own right, not just indirectly because it's instrumental, you know, in the whole ecosystem, but in its own right. And I think that's a fascinating direction to go to. So, you know, then they're not just wrestling with the questions of moral status within the context of the class, but also thinking, well, how, you know, how could we use this framing to get people to think outside of the box on what they typically take moral status to be in order to absolutely yeah yeah right right and yeah and um explore that yeah so it, like the philosophical connection arc the philosophical question connects up with questions about rhetoric about writing mm-hmm. um yeah oh these are these are incredible projects i um you know you, you've said a couple of things just in, just in terms of talking about uh philosophical concepts that you were exploring in the class about about relationship about interrelationship um, and it got me thinking about collaboration and of course you were developing this course and received a fellowship that was a joint fellowship with Michael Blake um, as part of the second iteration of the Mellon Grant which was focused on collaborative work and was trying to kind of establish a model of funding collaborative pairs rather than individuals. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit more to just the, the process of developing this course in collaboration with Michael. Um, how did that process work and, and what, what do you think it yielded? That's a good question. You know, I think for me, well, let me start this way. Philosophers still <laughs> primarily work alone in the context of, of typical philosophical work. And I, I just think it's less fun and it's less fruitful in terms of the range of ideas that you can bring to something. Um, so working with Michael on developing this and thinking about different public facing philosophical pieces that we could use, there's just things that he's aware of that, you know, we're, we're all fed a fire hose of information and um, news <laughs> coming at us. And there's no way that we'll ever uh, be aware of all the things that would be fantastic within a course. So working with him is just a way to double my eyes, right? Or my awareness of what's out there. And also just, I guess, to think beyond my typical way of looking at things, which has a feminist relational bent to it always, right? To think, okay, there might be other pieces that I I would want to bring in because not everybody coming to the class will have the same kind of orientation that I do. Um, I I still love to, you know, I was going to say include, but that's not quite accurate. That's the base of my course, because I think this is a better way to think about ethics, but right to have some different kinds of pieces out there as well is really helpful. And, you know, Michael was really fun to work with on this. And, and we trade the course back and forth. So I'll teach it. And then the next time it's offered, he teaches it and then back to me. And that means that we can keep building in a stair-step manner on each other's syllabi. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, as each of us changes it a little bit. And hopefully in the next iteration, he'll find 
new and more inventive ways to do public facing work within the context of the course. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's so helpful. And, I, you know, that's another way in which the ethics matter matters course is, I think, exemplary is that it's not just a kind of one off course that integrates mm -hmm. some public facing component, but it is a, a kind of core part of the curriculum that's taught. Uh, is it almost every year? Is that? Ah, uh, now I have to think about this. I think we teach it every other year. And then the Justice Matters course happens every other year. Every year. Okay. So every other year. But, at, you know, at the very least, it's a it's taught every other year um, by two people. So I think it really leads to a kind of curricular transformation that goes beyond the sort of one-off course, right? Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, how to how to <laughs> how to facilitate that, how to integrate public scholarship into graduate training in a way that is more sustainable and integral. Um, I think this course is such a great example of it. So I, I think if if you have insights coming from the experience of developing it with Michael, that would be so useful for folks. Yeah, I so I think I still need to sit more now that I'm through the course and think about what could be done better and then how to take some of the things that I tried in this iteration of the course into let's say my typical philosophy seminar for grad students because i think we have you know our department has kind of branded ourselves as committed to engaged philosophy so regardless of the area that we're very engaged with ongoing matters of interest in the public um you know neurotechnology um uh immigration climate change etc right all these huge issues for our um, world right now, trying to make sure that philosophy and ethics is integrated into those, uh, into the work that we do to try to address those things. Um, but of course, we're also trying to train philosophy grad students to be ready <laughs> to write dissertations. And if the dissertation is still a more traditional format, which is, you know, five chapters, more like a book, then we have to think, so how do we incentivize the more public facing or shorter and more public directed work like a blog or an op-ed or podcast or video for that matter. And I think our students are very creative about this, but we need to figure out ways to um, embed it within our curriculum, you know, so that it's a more regularized part of, of what we're teaching them to do. We're still working on that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's a process and it, this course is a great example of it, but but certainly there's so many different ways that we can think through how to recognize and, and valorize work that students are often doing in a kind of ex, extracurricular way. Yeah, one yeah. of the things the philosophy department does, we have a, a little fund, a little pot of money from a donor and we award Raider awards for in the summer for innovative philosophical projects. Oh, that's so, fantastic. you know, take some time out from when you're not teaching typically, or if you're not teaching or just in the half of the summer when you're not to do some innovative project that, um, you know, expands the boundaries of what you would otherwise be doing. And one of our past students, Stone Addington, um, put together a podcast oh, right? cool. to talk about philosophical issues and ended up now works for Humanities Washington and has this non-academic career really focused on public facing humanities. So I think that kind of little pot of money can spark new ideas as well. But that's of course separate from the typical curriculum. 
so we still have to work on that level of integration. Right, right. No, I, and I think a kind of both-hand approach can be really useful. I think graduate students are so so resourceful, so it oftentimes doesn't take a lot of support in order to sort of, like mm-hmm. you said, just kind of spark something that will really end up being very generative for them down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the students from the winter is coming from public health genetics and was just so frustrated with um, online public intellectuals who are loud, bombastic talking voices about issues that they are not really trained to know about. So this is what she wanted to do is use their venue and their model to push back against them. So she worked up, you know, a draft version and she filmed herself doing it, right? A short video about trust in experts <laughs> and what trust means. I think she used some resources from the um, Center for the Informed Public, uh, but also just sort of went through pieces that we have, say, Annette Byer's piece about trust and distrust to say, here's what trust is. Here's a problem. Let me give you an example of this online. <laughs> and her idea was that if she is you know, face right in the screen and as provocative as they are, then she might get the hits (laughs) in the same way that they do. Yeah. Sort of using their tools against them. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Cause that's a, that's a project that's also questioning what public scholarship is and should look like. Right. And what are the Mm -hmm. ethics of, of public facing work? So it's, it's thinking a number of different ways. I love that. Um, And it's, it's fun as an instructor, you know, this was my first time looking at um, final products like that. And it's, you know, it's out of my realm of what I normally look at and try to evaluate and give comments on. But of course, you can see things that work. And then you can see things where as a viewer, you think, oh, that needed to go by more quickly, or that went by too quickly. And I realized that we really, you know, we're all consumers of public information. And so we do have some uh, awareness of what's effective and what's not, even if I'm not trained in that area. And so, yeah, it was great to to be able to stretch in that way and see what she was working on producing. Absolutely. I, you know, that what you just said actually makes me want to ask a question about evaluation and, and how, I don't know, if you have any kind of more general thoughts on, on how one goes about um, evaluating public facing work or publicly engaged scholarship, um, especially in a graduate classroom and especially in an interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary graduate classroom. Um, what, you know, what are some of the considerations, um, or ways that you went, went about that, that, um, difficult task? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think I brought the same tools that I would use for evaluating, philosophical papers, but in this different environment. So is it clear what you're trying to get across? You know, is the, is the main thesis, even if it's not ever referred to in that way, it, it's implied in the video, right? Is that really clear? Is it reiterated, started at the beginning and reiterated again at the end? Do you, as you're going through, think about how there might be other ways of viewing this thing. So, you know, a typical philosophical paper has to involve this kind of self-identified objection section and a response to that, which is just part of 
recognizing the limitations of your view. And there are ways to do that, right? Within the context of even a quick video like this, or, um, you know, do you, if you're doing the video for social workers, show references and perspectives that might be different from the one that you're talking about, right? So that you can be inclusive of a variety of perspectives, even if you are arguing for a particular view. Um, so I, I felt like they transfer. It's just in a different medium. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it that, that's really interesting. So it's almost like you're, you're teaching philosophical thinking while allowing for different sort of generic manifestations of that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very cool. Well, uh, you know, on a, on a kind of closing note, um, do you have any advice for other professors who are thinking about doing publicly engaged courses or even just in aspiring public philosophers? Yeah. I mean, maybe two things. We'll see if I remember the second when I'm through the first. <laughs> the first thing I would say is that, um, Jumping in and trusting students who are very creative and know way more than I do uh, about how to put together a great video or about what makes for a, you know, a lively and provocative curriculum for that matter, curriculum for writing in this case. It, I, I think sometimes I would worry, well, if I'm not, if I haven't done my own podcast or I haven't done my own video, I'm not going to be in a position to really help them. But it turns out that students have a lot of these skills already on their own and want the freedom to be able to do that with support from you, right, about the kinds of things or some of the content that can go in there. But I think trusting them and, and, also reiterating that I really do want these things. I'm not just offering it as a, maybe if anybody's really creative, you could make this, but saying, I would love to see this. And I think things can have more impact than they do if we're just writing an academic paper in many cases, right? So encouraging them to think through that possibility and then supporting them along the way, but they have a lot of the skills that I don't have. So trust in the students would be one thing. And then I think um, in terms of doing the public philosophy, it just, I mean, it does open you up. I guess I haven't had the experience yet of being completely trolled. So I know that it can also open people up to horrible um, responses. But I think seeing the impact in a very immediate way is also really rewarding, right? For doing that kind of work. It's hard. It looks easy, right? If you have a very short... Uh, punchy piece, it looks like, well, it, it shouldn't have taken you that long. But again, to condense it down takes a lot of work. And to be true to what you're trying to say without oversimplifying is very difficult. But I think then it becomes the kind of thing you can send to relatives, they'll actually read it, right? You can put it out there in the world, and you'll get responses from people who say how much they value it or, or appreciate that work. And that's something that is it doesn't happen often in our academic circles, right? To get that kind of positive feedback. I do, I do have to recognize, we just um, hosted George Yancey, who's a fantastic public philosopher um, last weekend. And, you know, as he writes about in his book, Backlash, which was about the response to his um, 
post in the New York Times, Dear White America, it's awful and it's threatening. And, it, you know, public philosophy also has that real risk because you've put yourself out there in that way. But it's also, I mean, he he has taken a lot personally, but he has created and helped create this very important conversation. And so I think in that way, you can see the impact, even though it's, I just feel awful for him for the kind of response that he's gotten from some parts of society. Yeah, well, I, I think that's that's so useful for students, though, to just highlight both the risks and the rewards, right? Mm-hmm. And and then what you said about trusting that they have the skills and knowledge mm-hmm. to do really impactful work is is also something that I think is is so useful. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Sarah. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. This episode of Going Public was made possible with help from the University of Washington Simpson Center for the Humanities staff, particularly C.R. Grimmer, who is also the communications manager at the Simpson Center, our sound editor, Oliver Gordon, and of course, support from the Mellon Foundation. The Mellon Initiative at the Simpson Center, reimagining the humanities PhD in reaching new publics, catalyzing collaboration, was led by Kathleen Woodward, director of the Mellon Initiative, director of the Simpson Center, and UW professor of English, Rachel Artiaga, assistant director of the Simpson Center and associate program director of the Mellon Initiative, and myself, Annie Dwyer, assistant program director of the Mellon Initiative. We hope you check out additional episodes of Going Public on our website at www.simpsoncenter.org slash goingpublic and wherever you get your podcasts.